We are going to um, finish up our series today where we've been talking about wisdom and how God brings that about in our lives. And uh, the way we're going to wrap that up today is by taking a look at how he brings wisdom to us through a reluctant prophet. Now, this kind of leads us into a whole new series that will start next week where we'll be talking about how you can profit from the prophets. And we'll be looking at uh, a number of the prophets. But today we'll start off... uh, with seeing some wisdom that we can glean from one that was pretty reluctant. Have you ever seen somebody really get messed up with reluctance? I'll never forget the time I saw a kid trying to muster the courage to go off of a high dive for the first time. And he was very tentative climbing up, and he's very tentative walking out on the plank, if you will. And the, that kind of tentativeness... That kind of reluctance worked against him so badly that uh, as he was getting closer to the edge, he lost his footing. He slipped and he actually fell off of the diving board into the water rather than being able to jump or to dive, whatever he was going to attempt. Now, I've been playing uh, team sports for a long time. And uh, one of the key ways that you can get hurt in playing basketball, playing football, is to go out there reluctantly. And so everybody's running at full uh, speed. Everybody's, like, making moves or making hits or whatever at, at full impact. And if you're out there a little tentative, man, you'll get creamed. And, and that's kind of the way it is with life. If you get reluctant, if you get hesitant, if you're kind of, like, tentative in how you are engaging God and following God, you can kind of get wiped out. And so we're going to be talking about wisdom that we can glean from a reluctant prophet. And part of what we're going to be doing is saying, here's what you don't want to do. And uh, if you hadn't already guessed, we're going to be talking about Jonah. Now, Jonah is a little bit difficult for us to take seriously sometimes because he has been so caricatured. And uh, we kind of get cartoonish when we think about Jonah and being out at sea and the big storm comes and they throw him overboard and the big uh, fish or whale, whatever it was, comes along and swallows him up. And he's three days and three nights inside the belly, you know, of this great fish. And we kind of make veggie tales out of it. And we just have all kinds of fun. It's a child's kind of story. We don't take it very seriously. But the fact of the matter is the Bible takes it very seriously. The Bible does not treat it like it's just a metaphor from which we glean some kind of significance. But the Bible treats Jonah like a real life flesh and blood prophet of God who spoke the word and uh, indicated the will of God. And uh, I just want to kind of historically place Jonah uh, in the time in which he lives so that you can see we're talking about a real life kind of guy with real life kind of message. So 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that he was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II. You guys that have been reading through the Kings, bless you. And so when you got to the second Jeroboam, you began to read about Jonah. Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel. He was basically the most successful king in Israel's history following the Saul, David, and Solomon time. Uh, Even though he was a wicked king and he did a lot of stuff that uh, got him sideways with God and got him in trouble with God, he was successful in a number of other ways like expanding the borders. And according to the word of the Lord, which the God of Israel spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. 
So that historically places him at a time frame, and we're kind of reading through the Bible right now chronologically, at this early point, not at a later point with some of the later prophets. He is a contemporary with Hosea and with Amos, and when you begin to read those guys, you can also think Jonah. He lived right around that same time. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus refers to Jonah. And in Matthew chapter 12, 40 and 41, Jesus said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the whole point in raising that text is just to underscore the fact Jesus was referring to him as a historical character that had some historical experiences. And he even used that to describe his own death, burial and resurrection. So having said those things, let's think about Jonah for a few minutes. I do think it's fair to talk about Jonah metaphorically. I'm going to talk about him literally in just a minute. But metaphorically, there's no question that his life becomes kind of a picture of what was going on in Israel in his day. So as we're going to read in a moment, he tries to run away from God and he gets out of the will and out of the ways and out of the plan of God. Israel was doing that very same thing. And because of his waywardness with God, he ends up in captivity. He's swallowed up by this great fish. Israel is about to end up in captivity. And just as God gave Jonah a second chance, he's going to give his people a second chance to repent, to turn around, so on. So his life is something of a metaphor of what was going on with Israel in his day. But let's look more literally at what was going on with Jonah. And if you have a Bible, you'll want to open it up to chapter 1. And let's begin reading at that point. Let's see how well I can juggle everything. All right. So chapter one, you're going to switch me again. How are we doing there? I think we might be in business. At least it wasn't a wardrobe malfunction. So you got to give thanks and all kinds of things, right? Okay. This is just a weird day. What a weird day. All right. So chapter one of Jonah. Let's read the word of the Lord together, beginning with verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise." Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was like the world power in its day. And so Nineveh is like the capital city. It's like the most important city in the world in its day. And it's a very wicked place. It's, it imposed a lot of uh, terroristic, if you will, uh, experiences upon Israel and upon the people of God. So he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now, this is what prophets do. They go and speak the word of God. They're not just uh, 
foretellers just telling about the future. They're forth. They tell forth the word of God. They're speaking a whole lot into the current day and into the current circumstance. So go speak out against it. Go tell Nineveh, I'm going to judge them because of the way they have been wicked. So he says, uh, go and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So uh, here we see kind of the mistaken notion that you can run away from God. Now, have you ever, you know, been engaging God in a certain kind of way that you thought, I don't want anything else to do with him. And kind of carried out that mentality that I'm just going to separate myself from him. I'm just going to run away from him. Um, The ancient notion that Jonah is living out at that point is that notion that God was limited by geography. So the Assyrians had their God, the Babylonians had their God, the Egyptians had their God, and they were all in geographic regions. Israel has their God. And they they kind of think about God, even though there's a lot of teaching otherwise, they kind of think about him in geographic terms. And so Jonah's like, okay, I'll just leave Israel and I'll get away from God. And so he hops a boat to get away from God, and he finds out there's no getting away from God. Now, you know the story, so we're not going to belabor a lot of it. But what you're going to find is that when God sends the storm and when God begins to swallow up Jonah with this great fish, it really is an act of grace. Let's just look at it real quickly. Verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Skip on down to verse 17 with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, again, I'm going on record with you. I think this is a literal thing. I think it happened. And I'm not going to get into all the medical and scientific wherefores about how it could have happened. That's another whole discussion. But let's, for the sake of conversation, say it happened. Here's the point. God did some really hard stuff. With and toward Jonah. He intended for some really hard stuff to happen to Jonah. He creates a storm and he swallows him up with this uh, great fish. Why? Because he's a God full of grace. Hard stuff sometimes happens to God's people because he's extending grace to us. I'll say more about that in just a moment. And as we continue to see how it plays out with Jonah in chapter 2, beginning verse 7, he kind of comes to his senses and turns around about that, repents. So he's inside the great fish praying, and he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. (laughs) Remember is a ancient way of saying it occurred to me he really is the most important thing. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. There, again, the whole geographic notion. And those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he has this whole turnaround. Okay, I'll stop running. 
I'll come back to you. I'll get back on your page, your purposes, your plan. And what God was looking to have happen with Jonah is beginning to happen with Jonah. He's repenting. And we're going to say more about all this in just a second. But, friend, here's the point. Hard stuff going on might be the grace of God pursuing your life. Proper response. Stop going in the direction you've been going. Turn around begin to go in the direction of God. So, chapter 3, verse 1. One of the great, great verses of the Bible. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He got a second chance. Friends, we cannot be presumptuous that God gives anybody a second chance. Wow. He was gracious enough to give Jonah a second chance. And then picking up in verse 6 of uh, chapter 3. So the word reached the king of Nineveh. Jonah gets a second chance. Jonah goes north to Nineveh. He begins to walk across the city of Nineveh, proclaiming the word of God. And he gets an audience with the king. So the word reaches the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let them... Uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So, friends, we are looking at a miracle. This is a miracle that a wicked, evil, pagan, they don't even believe in the God that Jonah believes in, the God of Israel. But the truth of what Jonah says to them so penetrates their hearts, there is widespread repentance across the entire city. It's a huge mammoth city in its day, starting with the king and then with all the people. But Jonah is so sideways with God, he can't even get it that a miracle is taking place. Now, some of us have been praying for a long time that God would do something similar in the greater Redmond, the greater East Side, the greater King County, Puget Sound region. God, come and do a miracle in our midst where wide-scale numbers of people begin to turn to you, begin to repent, begin to confess that Jesus is Lord. We've been praying for those kinds of things for a long time. So if something like that were to happen, most of you in this room would get it. Act of God. Miracle. It caused you to worship. It caused you to be in awe. It caused you to be humbly bowing before the Lord. Jonah? He just gets ticked off. It just makes him all the more mad. Because for one, Nineveh is evil and it is wicked. And it has inflicted all kinds of terroristic, tragic stuff upon the Israelis. It wasn't like he didn't want to say, God's going to judge you real good. 
He was just afraid if he told them that, they might repent. He didn't want God to forgive them. It's a scary notion. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you truly hoped, God, don't ever forgive that person? And that's where he was, which is a state of real soul sickness. Pick it up in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It made him sick to his stomach. And he was angry. and He prayed to the Lord. And he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you're a gracious God. I knew you were merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disasters. Therefore, now, O Lord, please... Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live and see you forgive the Ninevites. And the Lord said, do you do well to be so angry? Wow, what a question. Let's think about this in terms of what kind of wisdom do we glean from this reluctant prophet? What are the lessons that we can learn? Let me mention to you a few things. The first is this. You can't escape the presence of God. Now, you're more sophisticated than the ancient Israelites. Most of the time, you don't think God is limited to geography. Most of the time. Now, sometimes you do. Sometimes we get so caught up with holy places like sanctuaries and like cathedrals. It's like... Well, I can't act that way in here, but I can act that way out here. So sometimes we do that whole geographic nonsense. But most of the time you recognize that God is not limited to geography. He is with you everywhere you go and with anything that you're doing. You just run away from God in more sophisticated kinds of ways. You'll do so mentally. You'll do so by getting yourself so busy with your work, you don't have capacity to think about God, to consider God, to reflect on God. Or you'll get so taken with an entertainment thing or with a recreational thing that it just edges God out so that you don't have capacity to think about Him, reflect on Him, acknowledge Him. And so we run, we still flee his presence as if we can get away from his presence. But the the reality is, as we see with Jonah, we don't get anywhere away from him. He's always just right there closer than your breath. Whether you can sense that or not. The second lesson we get is that when God disciplines us, that's an act of grace. So, friends... Some of us are in stormy situations today because God loves you. Some of us are in some circumstances that we don't like, we don't want. And we're like, why am I having to go through this? Because God loves you. Because as an act of grace, He is doing things in and around you. To seek to draw your heart back to Him. Now, 
we're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. When God disciplines us in these kinds of ways, it really is an indicator that you know him. It's an indicator that you are a son or a daughter of God. Hebrews 12, 5 says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises everyone he receives. The next verse goes on to say, if you don't get disciplined by God, it's an indicator that you're illegitimate and you're not really a son or a daughter of God. And so when we get disciplined and we get chastised by the Lord, thank you, Lord, for that act of grace. Let me go on to say just a little word of clarification, though. With Jonah, we see a circumstance where... A stormy situation befalls him, and he's almost in a shipwreck because he is sideways with God, because he's being disciplined. You get to the New Testament, you come to a guy by the name of Paul, and Paul, who is in a a journey, who's en route to uh, Rome, also gets into a shipwreck situation. And uh, Jonah gets swallowed up by, you know, a great fish. Paul gets bitten by a a snake or a serpent. So all these things are are kind of similar. They parallel a little bit. Only, here's the difference. Paul is going through these stormy situations because he's in the will of God. So here's what we need to understand. Are you with me? Trying to bring some nuance that I think is really important for us. If you're in the will of God, and if you're living in a way that's pleasing to God, sometimes He sends stormy situations. Not to discipline you at all. But because He can entrust a stormy situation to you for His glory. God was glorified in Paul through that shipwreck. Many, many hearts, many lives were drawn to Christ... Because Paul having gone through that stormy situation. So sometimes he will allow or send a stormy situation to you because you're right in the middle of his will. He's very pleased with you and he knows he can entrust to you his glory. And that stormy situation becomes a dark backdrop against which you can see God. So sometimes stormy situations are because he's disciplining you. Repent, come back to me. And sometimes it's because he's blessing you as a means to give glory to him where others are drawn to him. And it takes wisdom and discernment to know which is happening and why. Okay. Third thing that you want to take away from this reluctant prophet is this. Repentance is to lead to life change. And so if you'll notice, when I started talking about Jonah's repentance, I said he's beginning to repent. But full repentance is not just behavioral. Full repentance is not just saying, "Okay, I was wrong. I was going in the wrong direction. Let me turn around and kind of go in the direction of God. I don't want to go to Nineveh, but here I'm in Nineveh. I don't want to speak the word of God. I'm speaking the word of God. I don't want to see him forgive people. I'm watching him forgive people. Full repentance not only turns around and gets on the same page with God in terms of behavior, but also in terms of heart. If Jonah had had a full repentance, he would have wanted what God wanted. 
And if people began to repent, if a, a, a whole wicked city began to turn to God, you'd want to see that happen. You'd want to rejoice in that. You'd want to praise and glorify God that He had worked so effectively in the lives of those people. Do you follow what I'm saying, friends? Simple behavioral modification is not what God's looking for in us. Just that we'll be better people. That we'll be good. That's not what He's looking for. He's looking for us to be transformed. So that we are like Jesus. It is exactly that biblical picture of our lives being like clay And He is like the great potter. And He is shaping us and molding us and making us like Jesus. Not just in behavior, I'm being a good person. But in heart. I want the things God wants. And Jesus was in perfect harmony with the Father. So that they were one. And whatever the Father wanted, Jesus wanted. And whatever the Father was about doing, Jesus was about doing. Then the fourth and final place. What do we learn from Jonah? That we, if you're a follower of God, if you're a follower of Christ, that is the same as being called to mission. They go hand in hand. You can't be a prophet of God. You can't be a man of God and not be on His mission. You can't be a Christ follower. You can't be a Christian and not be on his mission. You say, I don't want to be on a mission. I, I, I don't want to change the world. I'm not about all that stuff. I just, I just want to go to heaven when I die. I don't want to go to hell. Then, friend, you've got a complete misunderstanding of what heaven and hell are. Because this isn't just the caricatured Heaven, all this pie in the sky, by and by, sweet, you know, glory stuff. And hell, just this horrible lake of fire, torturous kind of stuff. It's way more than that. We're talking about the difference between knowing God, loving God, being transformed by God, having a Christ-like life, and you get to do and be that all of eternity. The Bible says that is heaven. As opposed to not being so enveloped by God and becoming so taken with God, which is to be separated from Him, and that's hell. So, friend, if you just want heaven and not hell, then those kinds of things are more important to you than God. And therefore, you don't have God because He's not your treasure. Heaven is all about God is the treasure of my life. If I have Him, I have heaven. If I don't have Him, I don't have heaven. And all of that is exemplified, it is demonstrated in you by being on mission. If I have Him and He has me, our heart beats the same. And whatever he's about, I'm about. And whatever mission he's on, I'm on. And conversely, if, if I don't have that heartbeat, and if I'm not on that mission, then friend, I'd just say I would seriously look at whether I'm a son or a daughter of God. 
because it is an evidence that you are. Jesus said it this way. John 15, 5. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, I abide in him. And he bears much fruit. Stuff comes out of his life that's a part of the mission that I'm on. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is not optional. Jesus said it over and over again. It's not enough that you're good, that you're a religious person, that you're faithful in religious practices. You have to be an altogether new creation. Where he has so overwhelmed your life, baptized, immersed you in him so that it changes you into a new person that has his heartbeat and his mission. Friend, if that's not true for you, you need to seriously examine your heart and see, do I really have a legitimate connection with Christ or have I just been religious? So, what do you do with that? Let me make these three suggestions. The first is this. Stop running. If you're one of those runners, you're playing some kind of game and, you know, I'll act good in this place or I won't act as careful about life in this place. You've kind of got that whole geographic nonsense, nuance going on. Stop it. Or if you are so busying yourself with your work or if you're so taken with your recreation or your entertainment or some other relationship... Stop it. That's what you'd get from Jonah. Stop it. And turn to God. And if you're being disciplined in that process because you've you've kind of edged God out and you're just too busy or too occupied for Him, and He's messing with you, He's disciplining you, some hard circumstances have come your way because you are His son, you are His daughter, and He's saying, stop it. Count that as grace. Count that as His love for you. Because that goes hand in hand with how a father deals with his children. And will you repent? Not just change a little behavior, but repent from a self-centered kind of living to a Christ-centered kind of living. I'm going to pray for you. And after we pray, we're going to move to the Lord's table and receive the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is for people who have been born again unto Christ. They have been consumed and immersed in Christ. Their heartbeat is the heartbeat of God and they are on the mission of God. They are living a life of obedience and being in harmony with God. Okay? The Lord's Supper is not for religious people who try to be good. And so as I pray for you in this moment, you need a moment of clarity. God, how is it between me and you? What's the indicator out of the obedience that's a part of my life? The heartbeat that's a part of my life? 
And if there's something skewed there, friend, then use these moments to repent and to be reconciled and to get on the same page with God. Let me pray for you. Let's bow together. So, Father, thank you for Jonah. Thank you for what you've been trying to speak into our lives about these thousands of years later. And I pray right now for my friend that's living the conflicted, double-minded, self-centered life. They're in proximity to you. They're in proximity to the church. They are a better person than they used to be, and they do good things. But their heartbeat is not your heartbeat. And they're more immersed in the culture than they're immersed in you. And I pray, Father, for a delivering work on these friends today. I pray that they would know the power of Christ. To leave behind a dead life and move forward in true life. And that, Father, we come to this table rightly. Honoring you. Worshiping you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay.